Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you that all scriptures God breathes and given to us for, for our good, that you might reveal yourself to us and that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus. And we pray that that happens a little bit more this morning as we discuss the, the ratification ceremony of your covenant with your people and all that that entails and the, the picture that it gives us of what you've done for us in Christ. We pray that you make him beautiful to us and that you would draw us into him, that we would love Christ more and hate all the, less, the lesser things that, that so easily try to grab our affection. Thank you for this group. Thank you for their hunger to know you more, their love for each other, and for your word. And pray that you increase all of those this morning. In Christ's name, amen. We're looking at chapter 24. We're actually going to be going through 11 verses today. I know. I know. I'm... It's making me a little nervous, but we'll see what happens. Where are we? What, what has happened so far, just by way of review? Descriptive law. Descriptive law. We've gone through the book of the covenant that followed the Ten Commandments, also known as the Ten Words or Ten Testimonies. We talked about prescriptive law being the law that is eternal, that God reveals himself, his nature, his character through the Ten Words that he gave to Israel, and then descriptively, shows how they are to reflect him in their time and space through the book of the covenant. There will be other laws given, but right now we're looking at this book as the, uh, as the covenant uh, document between God and Israel. So uh, we've seen as we've gone through the law that not only does the law tell his people how to live, but even more significantly it shows what kind of God has redeemed them. The lawgiver reveals himself in the laws he tells them to obey, right? We see him in the law. So at the heart of the law is a covenant relationship with God. And uh, in, our, in our passage today, uh, the covenant is ratified. What does ratified mean? That's the big word for today, ratified. If you have a, if you have a contract and, uh, and, and you both... What's that? Added to ratified. Accepted. Both parties. The states had to ratify the constitution. Very good. The states had to ratify the constitution. That means everybody knows what's in it, and everybody accepts it. There's two parties, or multiple parties in the case of the states. Here we have two parties. Who are the parties? God and the people. God and the people. All right. Let's look at chapter 24. We're going one through eleven today. Morning. Then he said to Moses, verse 1, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came... And told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars 
according to the twelve tribes of Israel. He, and he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Now that's pretty cool. How many groups does he call up on the mountain? Can, can you, Grant, can you get the air? Because it's like 97. Is it 69? Is that what it is? Thank you. Appreciate it. How many people did he call? How many groups did he call up? How many? Just one. There's 70 elders. That's one group. Moses is a group. Aaron, so what are the three different types of groups that he has going up? There's Moses. What does he allow Moses to do? Okay. That's an interesting analogy since we're going toward the tabernacle. Uh, Moses is up on the, he, he is allowed to go up to the summit where God is, right? Why, would, why do you think that is? Why not take, take Nadab? Why not Aaron? Why does Moses get to go up to the summit? They've, had, they've got history. Okay? Because the priest hasn't been consecrated. Because the priesthood hasn't been consecrated yet. Now, that's an interesting point. What is Moses' position right now? Priest? He's the one communicating between God and the people. What do we call that? A mediator. Okay? He's mediating the covenant, isn't he? You know what a mediator does? I mean, you've heard of that term, right? Mediator. Um, in a lawsuit when you have a settlement conference, they put you in these rooms. Plaintiffs go in one room, defendants go in the other, and it's really bad if there's glass rooms because when your client goes, Yoo-hoo! you know you can't negotiate any further you know, for a higher sum. But there's a guy that goes in between the rooms and says, no, they'll take this, they won't take this, no, they'll take this, they won't take and they go back and forth, back and forth. Moses is mediating a covenant between the people of God and God. Now, in all fairness, it's kind of a unilateral negotiation at this point. But he's the go-between. He goes up to the summit. Who's next? Aaron and his sons. Why those guys? Because they're going to be the priests. But do they get to go up to the summit? No. They're halfway up, right? And what about these 70, these 70 elders guys? What is that all about? 70? Really? It's a lot of people. Trekking up a mountain. Who are they? What do they represent? So they are 
shall we say, federal representatives of the people of Israel. Each tribe is represented by the group of leaders that they send up. This is the people, right? What happens to them happens to the people. Okay. Does it seem odd to you that people other than Moses are called up to the mountain? What had God said before about approaching the mountain? If you do so, you you die. I'm deaf in one ear, can't hear out the other, so feel free to, to speak up. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. This is an exception to the rule, isn't it? Of come on up, or you, if you touch the mountain, you die. It's meant to be a big deal. That The verb here, the, the smart folks tell us, the, the, the verb for to go up is used seven times in this chapter, and that's 1 through 18. Um, and, and some of the guys say that it might reflect the idea of completion, this to go up. The last time it's used, it's used of Moses going up into the cloud, into the summit where God is. That's the final, the, the, the final ultimate result of this go up uh, expression. So within the three groups, there are also three levels of approach to God on the mountain. There's Moses who can go up to the summit. There's the representative leaders in the priesthood that are only allowed to go up partway. And then who, there's everybody else. What does everybody else do? They're worshiping from a distance. Remember, you talk to God for us. Don't let him speak to us lest we die. I mean, they were, they were watching the theophany of God on the mountain kind of like this because they were running away from the voice of God, right? So they're still at the base of the mountain, away from the mountain, while the leaders and Moses go up. And that's the picture you have here. Now, before they go, what happens? What happens before they ascend? I would look in verse 3. Okay, what, what does he do before that? Th- this whole passage, just 1 through 11, forms what's known in, 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 the, in, the, in the seminary circles as a chiastic structure. You have here, Moses and the elders are commanded to go up, verses 1 and 2. Let's call that A. Then you have the words of the Lord, the affirmation of the people. That's B, a little bit in. Then you have... The words that are written by Moses, that's the discussion there, the, ro- the words that are taken by Moses, that's C, let's say. And then you have, I wish I had a board. Um, then you have the blood of the covenant, right? We see the sacrifice, that's the furthest thing in. And then it works its way backwards. You have words again, the reading of the words, the affirmation of the people. You have the, uh, the, the structure of uh, the Moses and the elders in, in, on the mountain. And then it ends up with the, uh, the whole... Um, no, reading the... Anyway, the way it works, the very middle thing, what's in the middle? Which is? The blood sacrifice. Why do you think that is? Okay, always a good answer in Sunday school. What, what, why are they doing this? He's reading the words. There's a sacrifice. There's an affirmation of we will do it. Then he reads the word again. Then, then, then they go, we will do it again. And then they go up. Why, what's going on here?
Okay, well, there may, there, may be, there may be some of that. He reads the law. Now, what is he talking about when he talks about the law? He talks about the words and the ordinances. So we know that it's the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant. So he's reading that. Now, we've gone through the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant in seven months now. I counted last night. I believe that, seven months. That's awful. That's slow, isn't it? And I actually said pretty, pretty fast when you think about it. It didn't take him seven months to read it on the mountain. It wasn't seven months. It's really just about three chapters, four chapters. I mean, although it wasn't broken down. I mean, you realize the chapters aren't inspired. So. But he was reading this to them. It takes a little while to do it. And then they respond. How do they respond? What do they say in verse 3? Verse 4, maybe. Everything God has said, we will do. Did they say that before? Before the Ten Commandments were given? Uh, Verse yes. nine, in chapter 19? They, Verse they said you, uh, was it God said, I will make a covenant with you, and people were like, yeah, 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 great. Yeah, before they got one stitch of the law, they're agreeing to it. Mm-hmm. Now they've got the law, and they're agreeing to it. And they're saying, we will do it. And they respond with one voice. What does that mean, responding with one voice? Unison. They're in one accord. Um, I'm not going to make that joke. Okay. Um, It's tough. Then the agreement was put in writing. Why? Why is it put in writing? That's exactly right. It's a testimony to what they've agreed, right? They actually know what's in the bill before it's passed. It's read out loud from the floor of the decision-making body. What a novel concept. This document included the, the ten words and the ordinances of the Book of the Covenant. It's part of this ratifying covenant. What we have here is a picture of two parties coming together. There is a great king who has conquered. And there is a people who are subject to the great king, a vassal, a client nation. And they are coming together. And he is giving them an opportunity for peace. Serve me and there will be peace. And the picture is, both parties are being read this agreement. Right? Moses uh, uh, builds two, two, two structures there. What does he do? What's the first thing he builds? Uh, an, altar. an altar. Why an altar? For the sacrifice. What does an altar represent? Sacrifice, atonement, presence of God is really what he... This is God's representative of God as party to this treaty. Then you have 12 pillars. Now, we've discussed pillars. Not the East Texas pillars. These are stone structures. And what uh, what do they represent, 12 of them? What what are the odds? The 12 tribes of Israel. Who does that represent, then? The people of Israel. And the altar represents the presence of God. And these are the symbols of the parties to this covenant. Right? That we've gone over for seven months. Who makes the sacrifices? People. What kind of people? The young men. The young men. Why, why not get Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu? 
The answer has already been given. Because the priesthood hasn't, yes, exactly. The priesthood hasn't been formally uh, uh, consecrated yet or ordained yet. What is offered? Two offerings. What are they? He says it. Okay, that's the last one. What's the first one? The burnt offering. Why is it called a burnt offering? Because you burn it. <laughs> it's wholly consumed. Nicely done, thank you. It is wholly consumed. There's no part of it left over. What does it represent? A burnt offering. Oh, I can't wait to get to Leviticus. It's the, the first not, chapter. The Lord had not yet prescribed their practice or described their full function of Israel, so we don't know. Is that uh, Curate's notes in, uh, in Exodus and the ESV study Bible? Yes. yes. Okay, so he hadn't prescribed their practices, but what does a burnt offering, what has it meant all in Genesis and, and all through Exodus so far? What is a burnt offering? Do you remember? It's an atonement. Their sins are covered. This is, a, this is an offering for atonement, that kind of, of uh, idea here. Now, it gets a little bit more specific, well, actually a lot more specific when we get to Levitical law, but here the burnt offering says we need to be covered. Then you have the peace offering. What do you think that is? Thanksgiving. Okay, why? Why would there be Thanksgiving? Because they just had a burnt offering, and there is peace between God and man. All right. Uh, incidentally, Curate also calls the, the, peace offering, uh, the peace offering a communal celebration reflecting peace between God and the Hebrew community. So Thanksgiving is a good term for that. <laughs> Later, later in, in Leviticus, that's that's part of it. Is it's, it becomes a meal, and we'll see some. We've seen some of that this morning. Um, what, what is first of all before we get to that? What does Moses do with the blood? The the altar. He first sprinkles it on the altar. Here's the picture. He reads the the document, and then he sprinkles it on the altar. Why would he do that? What's, what's the deal with the blood? Why would you have blood in this covenant? What is that a picture of? What is that saying? It's the, Symbolic of what? It's the, the main aspect of it, of the covenant. Okay. It's the currency, if you will. The currency of the covenant. What does it mean? What, somebody's going to have to die if what? If, if there is a breach of the covenant, right? If there's a breaking of the covenant. Do you remember, maybe you don't, I don't know. Some of you who are with us in Genesis. Do you remember Abraham having the dream where he got, before he, he falls asleep, he, he splits the animals in half, the, do, the doves and the, and the cow and the thing, and, he, and, he's walk, and he doesn't get to walk between it. He cuts a covenant with God but then falls asleep in dreams, and there's these two light-type things, these theophanies, that float through, walk through between the the the, uh, the animals that are cut. Do you remember what that was about? If I don't fulfill this covenant, let what happened to these animals be done to me. That that is the significant. It's a little bit different than our contracts today. Don't see too many 
courtrooms showing the video of the sacrificed animal saying, all right, now he broke the covenant here. This is what happens. We don't do that. They do that. This is that kind of significant of an agreement. King, client, people, right? So the blood here has that same kind of idea. From life to death, that's the extent of this covenant. That's the significance of this covenant. And it's sprinkled on the altar. I mean, we, we think of the people of Israel needing to be obedient to the covenant or this will happen to them. God takes that on himself too. I will fulfill my covenant. I will be faithful to this covenant or let this happen to me. Well, at this at this point, this is a covenant, a covenant agreement. I mean, there, there's there's imagery of Christ in here. And we'll get to that in a minute. But but the, right now, it's just this is a covenant between a, a powerful king and a people. I mean, that's that's the picture he's using. He's using the ancient Near East. It's called Cesarean Treaty. I think that's the way he pronounce it. Where where uh, he's using the, the the culture of that kind of treaty to make an expression of what he's doing with his people. Right. That would be a substitution thing. And, and in a sense, this sacrifice that they're seeing is also a substitution. I mean, they're not being torn apart for breaching the covenant, even though in a few short chapters we're going to see they horribly breach the covenant. <laughs> ah, it's ridiculous. Okay, so, uh, so there we have uh, the God being, the, the presence of God, the altar being sprinkled with the blood. Um, Keeping the covenant meant that life would be given. Breaking it led to the shedding of blood and death. Then what happens? He sprinkles it on the altar. Then what does he do? After doing what? He reads the words again, doesn't he? Well, that's odd. Why would he do that again? I mean, I understand in the age of technology we have very short-term memories. But here, they had just read it. They would just seen the blood. I don't think that, you know, you'd be too forgetful. Why would he read it again? For the same reason that the defendant in the court of law has to repeat what they're about to vow to do. I don't know. Underline the importance of it. Underline the importance of it. Well, here's, if you have one party having it read to them, and then there's blood sprinkled on then you have the other party having it read to them, and then they're going to get sprinkled with blood. Is there any confusion as to what we're agreeing to? Wait, is there any confusion as to what we will be agreeing? There's no preposition to the end of that. Is there any confusion there? Everybody's had it read. Everybody knows what it's entail, what, enta- what it entails. And they're both now saying, I commit to this life to death. I'm committing to this. And in fact, the second time, the Hebrews say again, what do they say? Everything that has been said, we will do. And then what? They even get a little bit more emphatic. We will obey it. 40 days is a short time, isn't it? In the scheme of things. Within 40 days, these words will come back to haunt them. But right now, everything is rosy. 
there's a public reading of the treaty, and this is normal in the ratification process uh, in the ancient Near East. In some cultures, it was a requirement that it be read regularly in each of the two countries so that there would be no misunderstanding about the content of the agreement. There would be no signing without full disclosure. So then what happens? All of this, Moses says, is based upon the law of Sinai. Based on these words, according to these words, this is the covenant. So what happens in verse 9? What happens? They go up. And then what? They, they see God. Now, do they see God? It says they see God. What does it describe? Sapphire stone. Feet. Does it say feet? Under his feet. Like the very heaven for clearness. Does that sound familiar? This picture of the floor under the feet of God? Revelation? Ah, oh, he beat you to it. What, what else? What else? Do you remember this anywhere else? I, kind of, I mean, it's kind of similar to the burning bush. That the ground that they walked on was holy ground and they had removed sandals and it wasn't clear. Yeah, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of Isaiah 6 um, where I saw the Lord and it's just the feet. He doesn't really even see. He just sees the throne. He hears the angels, and all, all he's seeing is the, the base. And then uh, Ezekiel, I think, also has a vision of the same throne room, but just the floor, the nothing. I mean, we're not given any kind of physical attributes of God, but this theophany of the throne room. What kind of picture is this? I mean, we have a mountain. We have a very earthy situation because we're in the middle of the wilderness. And yet, they see, it says they beheld God. They beheld God. And how do they behold Him? What's going on? Heaven, at least in some sense, partially, is coming down to earth, right? Well, that kind of connection at least a partial connection there. Something like that hasn't happened since the fall. The unity of heaven and earth is broken in the fall. And in this covenant, there's a taste of it. He's coming down. Things in heaven, things on earth. And yet he doesn't. And, that, and that's the, the exception here. It says it very specifically um, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God. Not only were they not killed, what happens? They, they, they ate and drank at the feet of God. Now what's that a picture of? What does that tell you? Hostility? Fear? Fear? I don't belong here. 
They don't. Peace with God through the blood of the covenant. And like I said, in a few short chapters, we'll see that they radically break this covenant with God by worship of a golden calf. We can't keep it either, can we? Lots of golden calves. By nature, it says, we are children of wrath. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. We rebel against our Creator because we crave slavery. Slavery of our own making. Slavery born of the delusion of being free from all restraint. We cannot obey because we will not obey. It's a, it's a matter of what the smart guys call the sin nature. Right? It all looks good here on the mountain. It doesn't last long because of God's unfaithfulness? No, the people's. And the covenant is dependent upon their obedience. All that the Lord has said, we will obey. Well, that's a lie. We love our little pet addictions. For a moment, they make us feel like a god, oblivious to the self-destruction they cause by their claims. But maybe we're not so oblivious. The word given at Sinai revealed God, but that word was only a shadow of the word who was coming, the eternal word. Do you remember what it says in John 1? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word was not just read to show us how to be, but live the requirements of the covenant for us. Lo, it is written for me in the book, I have come to do your will, O God. All that you've commanded, I will obey. Romans 8, 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The covenant was not ratified by the blood of animals here, but by the one who had fulfilled the covenant. He took on the penalty of what the covenant breakers deserved. Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Does it depend on our faithfulness? Does it depend on our statement, all that you have said we will obey? No, it depends on his faithfulness, what he has done, and his creative power to transform us so that by nature, 
We want to please Him. We want to obey Him. They could only go up halfway, the people down at the floor. But in the New Covenant, God is not far off. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen, some of the older translations, we have beheld His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you see how it's a better covenant? Do you see how this is something um, that blows the doors off anything Moses and the Israelites experienced in the desert? I find it very fitting that we should have this passage this morning. Um, I did not plan it that way. I know the last communion we had a sermon that was not planned that way. This lesson was not planned this way. But in the providence of God, I hope that we take the Lord's Supper today remembering that because of the finished work of Christ, you are or you can be at peace with God. Christ himself is the peace. Christ himself is the meal. I'm not talking transubstantiation. I'm not talking about how the bread and the blood or the wine become the physical body of Christ. I'm talking about our souls being reborn in him are nourished by him because we love him and feed on him more than any lesser yippy thing. We're made alive because he died. We continue to live because he is alive. We can obey Him because it is He who lives in us, changed nature, nourished by His Spirit, fighting to throw off the last remnants of our habits of slavery, proclaiming the good news that we can behold God in the face of Christ and not die. I want to leave you with this benediction from the author of Hebrews, whoever he may be. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. I can't kick this habit. I can't, I, can't, I can't kill this sin in my life. Behold God in the face of Christ. Dwell there. Stay there. Live there. Be at peace in Christ there. Everything else is shadow. Any questions, any comments? All right, I will pray, but I'll let Grant leave first. <laughs> Father, we read passages like this, and I hope that the result is both joy and fear. 
fear in the sense that we know that we are woefully unworthy of your mercy and your grace. Joy in the fact that you give it freely and that you are faithful to finish what you've started in us. This all culminates into the one idea of I will be their God and they will be my people. And the goal you have of dwelling among your people. You did that in Christ. You are doing that in Christ. And you will complete it fully in Christ. And we're thankful. Continue to draw us to Him. God, don't let us get complacent and used to these things. Keep us in awe of what you've done for us in Jesus. Help us to disdain lesser masters as we love and follow your Son, our King. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.